So this is our last gathering. And being a final session um, together, uh, there's probably quite a lot to put into it. Uh, being time constrained, we'll have to somehow manage the time as best we can. We hope to end our sort of group session at the seminar formally at 4.30, after which uh, Nichola uh, will have some sort of housekeeping announcements to make. But because it is our last session and there'll be some thank yous to be said, um, the format will have to be a little bit different. Um, so what I think we, we would like to do is to offer the floor and the space for contributions, some sharings, um, I'd like to just make a few very short reflections, having had the privilege of sitting up here and, as it were, witnessing everything from the front row. Um, just a few thoughts that have come to my mind, which I hope will um, be of some benefit. And uh, I'd like to leave sort of 10, 15, 15 minutes or so to the end for Ajahn Amaro to do his summary and um, perhaps lead us in some sort of chant. I've put him in the center here because what I'd like to reflect in some ways is that this is all possible, thanks to the tradition that we're in. Yes, and Amaravati exists here because of the dedication and commitment of many individuals who have um, walked away from the challenges that we face to face another host of their own challenges you know, on their path uh, to freedom. So, for the next half an hour or so, um, perhaps a little bit less since we've started just a little bit late, um, I'd like to offer the floor back to all of you and uh, see what has emerged from the groups. I'd just like to probably kickstart this uh, process by saying how deeply moved I've been today. Um, only sitting up the front here has helped me contain all the emotions that I've been feeling, uh, tears as well. And um, so the one reflection I'd like to offer at this point is that we like to think that we talk to a theme but actually the themes often talk to us and through us. And I think we witnessed that this morning when Catherine spoke, when the theme burst through <laughs> and uh, communicated itself so powerfully to us all. So if you have felt the theme move you in some way and want to speak through you, then please feel free to, 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 to share. And uh, we'll have the, the purple flower going around. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Joseph. Um, this is not easy. Um, um, I don't claim to be a Buddhist. Um, it's I've, I've been a sportsman all my life, and uh, that's always been my pursuit. As of late, um, Buddhism and my friend Michael, who sat over there, has introduced me to it and to Amaravati, and this is my first retreat, although I have been um, several other times to um, a delightful um, meditation workshop with Chris at the front there, and also another day's meditation, and this is my first retreat, and it's been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life, and I just wanted to thank everyone in the room and the speakers, monks, um, for the pleasure of being here. It's been an absolute delight, and I wish it was an ending today for me. Unfortunately, it is. But uh, I will continue to read and hopefully visit again. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Can I go off piste a bit with the theme? Um, I want to say thank you, and I um, really appreciated Ajahn Kalyano's um, bringing of his painting, because along with the gift of spiritual friendship, the Sangha and brothers and sisters in Dharma, then one of the things that, that helps me is um, art and poetry. And I found this poem um, just before coming, and um, I'd like to read it because humour um, and compassion 
are very good um, antidotes to some of the suffering that we come across. And this is actually very humorous, even though it might also make you cry. This is by someone called Billy Collins, and it's um, called Forgetfulness. And for me, it's one of the little deaths, which is the um, slipping away of my once fine memory. So this is called Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never <laughs> even heard of. As if one by one, the memories you used to harbour decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. <laughs> Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorise the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, <laughs> nor even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river, whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall. <laughs> well, on your way to oblivion, where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a, a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem you used to know by heart. Thank you, Cathy. Thank you. Yes, could we have the flower down this way? Thank you, Richard. Sasha. We didn't address fear very much in our group this afternoon. And when I thought about fear, it was my fear of heights and 9-11 which isn't actually going to happen to me ever. But when Kathy read her poem, I realized that my great fear is just that. It's the loss of what is a very good memory for everything except my own life. And my increasing awareness through practice that myself, the self, is composed very largely of sanya perception memory and it would be good to know how in the practice one can let go of the treasuring of memory that poem terrified me <laughs> and I don't find it funny Thank you. Um, I'd like to respond, if I may, take the liberty and um, say a few words because it was something I was hoping to touch on in my own sort of contribution. Um, one of the fields that I work in is trauma, and I've been doing that for six years now and um, have learned an enormous amount. And um, what I've realized in working with trauma is that actually all of life is a form of trauma on one, one way or another. 
And in, in the field of trauma, there are sort of two categories of trauma. There's small T trauma and big T trauma. Big T trauma are the sort of events that um, Joseph would have witnessed and experienced, and some of us have, and you, Kathy, yes, where something really, really terrible happens, yeah. But in fact, the, the, the principles of, uh, of trauma therapy, which I see very aligned to, to what Buddhist teachings have to offer, is the recognition that actually we have so many bumps on the road of life. We don't have perfect parents, we don't have perfect environments. There's always something which hits us because we know that all phenomena has two sides to it, something painful and hurtful and something pleasurable and we're often torn between the two. And what I um, <coughs> have learned in, 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 in addressing this trauma is that there's something called a so-called window of tolerance. We either respond with fear, yes, and that fear makes us do one of two things. It makes us either fight the circumstances or situation or whatever we're faced with, or we want to run away from it. And if those two strategies fail, yes, we go into a sort of freeze giving up mode, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, although that sounds very extreme, if we witness what happens to us when we are faced with a challenging situation, those are exactly the three core responses that tend to arise, yes. Either deal with it in some kind of proactive way, or we run away from it and end up doing what Achanamaro describes so well, running away from a shadow of some kind, yes, or can be very real, that shadow, actually. Or we end up just freezing, not knowing what to do, yes. And one of the key things one does in working with, uh, with those sort of problems on a very, very personal level, yes, is one wants to regulate one's response to what one is being faced with, yes. And amazingly enough, when I started reading the literature, yes, what is the key mechanism, the most simple physical, physiological mechanism that we can down-regulate and somehow manage our response to fear? Because the problem is when we go into the fight-flight mode or we go into the freeze mode, yes, what we lose is our cognitive faculties. We lose our ability to think and reflect, yes. And we know that insight, yes, actually is the most evolved part of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. So when we're under sort of any emotional type of stress, yes, the prefrontal cortex switches off. Yes, that's a tendency. Because what comes into play are our instincts, our instinct to survive. And this leads me to uh, what I'd like to say about how we relate to our emotions. Because it is our instinctive, emotional being that responds to these threats as we perceive them, because we have a sense of self. And what I have found in reading Buddhist literature, as well as psychological literature, yes, that it's very easy to de demonize and see our emotional reactions as some kind, uh, as some kind of enemy, something that stops us functioning. Actually, there's another way of turning this round. And that is to actually see our instincts and our reactions as actually our friends. They are doing the best that they can, whether it be fear or anger. It's actually an instinctive response to try and protect us. But what it doesn't have, it doesn't have the wisdom or the insight to see the bigger picture. Yes. So instead of seeing our emotions and our instinctive reactions as something bad, something to be condemned, something to be pushed away, fought against, which is a working model and works for some people, yes, I think for most of us Westerners, yes, who often don't have the nourishment, the attachment patterns that often one has in healthy, wholesome families which have family units, yes, is not to see these as an enemy, but actually to see them as friends, to see fear as a friend to see anger as a friend, to even see hatred as a friend, because these are instincts trying to protect us, trying to protect life. Once they are befriended, yes, once they are accepted, yes, as something which is trying to do good but doesn't have the insight and doesn't have the bigger picture, yes, they can actually become an ally because they all call on our energy, yes. Anger has a lot of energy to it, but it is often very destructive. But if we're able to befriend anger, actually, what that anger is trying to tell us, yes, that something unjust has happened, something not right has happened. It doesn't know why necessarily, and it just reacts. But once that energy is harnessed through understanding, through compassion, through empathy, yes, that energy turns into compassion, turns into something positive, yes. And it's linking those two in that way, befriending what we often call and regard as enemies, yes. We find that actually we end up being resourced in a way beyond our imagination. Yes. So, and what is the key 
element that brings us into this sort of window of tolerance where we can function properly, where we can actually use all our resources, including our highest resources, which ultimately are inside, yes? It's breathing. Amazingly enough, all the studies show that the most direct and immediate way into down-regulating a state of anxiety or distress, yes, is learning how to breathe. So what the Buddha knew, what he learned from his meditation teachers, yes, what we are practicing, what all meditators have known, is that actually learning how to breathe properly is a key regulator, not only of our physiology, yes, but also of our mind state. There's another thing I wanted to add, especially for people who are new to Buddhism here, yes, that we speak about the mind, and it's very easy to confuse the mind with our mental processes. Actually, when the Buddha spoke of the mind, when Asian teachers speak of the mind, they're talking of the mind-heart, they're talking of the chitta. Now, the chitta includes a lot more than just our thinking, manas, our mind, yes? It includes our feelings. Because what we're dealing with as human beings, yes, is with our emotions. Where are the emotions? They're in the body. They're in the heart. And the heart, the way the heart actually beats, reflects our emotional equilibrium. And our breathing affects the way our heart functions. So learning how to breathe, yes, in a way that is connected, that is true to the moment. And by being present in the moment with our breathing, in the way we've had described so beautifully by Richard in his opening talk, learning how to stay with the rhythm of the breath, with one-pointed attention, yes, has a remarkable effect of actually creating something which is physiologically called heart rate coherence. Heart rate coherence allows the heart to beat naturally. Going from a fast heartbeat, which is our sympathetic nervous system, our protective system, to the parasympathetic nervous system, the slow beat, which is one of recovery, of, um, of regeneration, of calmness, of nourishment. And alternating between these two in a regular way actually is conducive to a lot more than just a regular heartbeat. It lowers our blood pressure, yes. It reduces tension. It allows us to think and feel clearly, yes. So what it does, it opens up the opportunity to be able to reflect on what we're experiencing, as opposed to being caught up in a dynamic where we become a victim. So it stops us being a victim. It allows us to become a participant in the process of life. So what we have the ad wonderful advantage of is having been exposed to these teachings, yes. We have the opportunity to anticipate the disasters that await us, yes. So instead of waiting for some great cataclysm to come and hit us and wake us up out of our reverie, yes, by coming on retreat, by practicing the Dharma, yes, we actually have an opportunity through our mindfulness practice to allow us to ride the small bumps, which actually prepares us for the bigger bumps. Yeah. Now we have one wonderful advantage over all these physiological teachings to do with trauma. We actually have some wonderful teachings which gives so much more depth than just regulating how we're feeling in response to a particular situation, yes? Because we have the Four Noble Truths and we have the Eightfold Noble Path. And actually, that's the toolkit. That's the mechanism. That's what we need. And we know, and many of us can testify to it, that that toolkit is absolutely fantastic. It uncovers, encompasses everything. The relational side of life, yes? How we relate to the world, to others. It also allows us to relate to ourselves, yes. Right effort is how to deal with these situations where we feel terrorized. We don't encourage terror, yes. We downregulate it, yes. What we do is we enhance positive states of mind, but we never deny what we're experiencing, yes. So developing uh, a, a creative, uh, a heartfelt, benign response to everything that we experience, yes, creates a field of merit, Yes, creates a field of, 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 of good energy. Because the way our heart beats actually also radiates an electromagnetic impulse, which affects the way the brain functions. It creates a field around us. The moment you meet someone who is grounded, who is present, yes, we feel it. Where do we feel it? Not through the head. We know it through the body, yes. We've heard some quotes from the Buddha in, 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 in our talks uh, and presentations, yes. And I have my favorite as well, yes. The Buddha was asked, where does one find the truth? Yes, where does one find the answer? Yes. And having eliminated several options, yes, he says, actually, the body is where we find the answer, yes. In this fathom-long body, yes, with its 
perception and its consciousness is the whole world. And when he was using that word, the whole world, yes, he's speaking about the universe, principles of the universe, yes, is the whole world, the arising of the world and the cessation of the world and the key sentences and the path leading to cessation from the world. So we find the answer, we find our freedom, yes, actually in the body, the thing that we're so frightened of, the sometimes the thing we're so attached to, but actually it's in our body that we find the answer. So whatever our capacity is to be present to what arises in the body on the level of sensation, on the level of feeling, on the level of perception, thought, mind states, yes, that's where we'll find the answer. So I think that that sort of, in a way, summarizes for me the essence of this weekend, how to deal with aging, how to deal with sickness, how to deal with birth, yes, of our children, our own birth, and how to deal with sickness and how to deal with death, to be present. And my hope is that we all have the opportunity and the, the blessing to have people who are around us with love, who aren't frightened themselves, yes, who are sympathetic to the process that we're going through, because actually love, which is essentially acceptance, yes, a recognition of the unifying nature, the oneness of, of, of all being in this, in, this state of empty, in this essential state of emptiness, yes, there we, there we'll, then we'll be able to pass away peacefully. And just like to suppose end with a statement of Thich Nhat Hanh, we never really die, yes, we come and we go, but life is manifesting in this emptiness. So in a sense, we never really die. We think we die, but that's uh, a perception. So I'd like to just offer that for, <laughs> hopefully for some sort of benefit. <laughs> and thank you very much, because it's as a result of being in this process that uh, uh, it's not me saying these words, the words are, uh, are speaking through me, yes. follow that but <laughs> I just wanted to recommend a book that was on the reading list if anyone hasn't read it and especially for you Sash and it's called Contented Dementia <laughs> and it's um, well <laughs> okay well I read it and I looked after I look after a man with dementia who was a university professor and now I read him nursery rhymes because he's lost his language and everything he's known and he sits with me and laughs and points to the pictures while I read him these rhymes and tell him stories and he talks nonsense back to me but he seems very happy most of the time, anyway. But the book is about a woman who looked after her mother with dementia and how she coped with it and all the difficulties and, and all the highs and lows of it. And it was very funny in lots of places and made me laugh. And it also was very sad in lots of places and made me cry. But what I learned from this woman gave me so much for helping this man... And I've also passed it on to a lot of other carers who help him and hope to pass it on to other people who look after people with dementia. Because what I learned was three things. One was that you don't ask them questions because they can't take on any new information. They're full up and they're also forgetting things. So you don't, I don't ask Norman, do, do you want a cup of tea? I say, let's have um, if they can, if they've still got their memory, we count them as an expert in what they know, because they can often play the piano still, they can, they can talk about what they did before, uh, often for many years before they get really bad, Norman's had dementia for years and years, so they can talk about their garden or whatever their interests are, and you've still got a good connection with them, and the third thing is never to argue with them. So when I went out the other day to make a cup of tea for Norman and I came back, he said to me, hello. <laughs> he said, I haven't seen you for years. 
And I said, no, we haven't. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> <laughs> and smiled. I mean, why spoil it? Why say, well, I was here five minutes ago. What's the point? He can't remember. So that's what I'd like to share, even if you don't want to read the book. But the reason I don't want to read it is that it's precarious. If I have dementia, I won't remember what it tells me. <laughs> <laughs> well... If you, if you could recommend a French translation to my future carers... <laughs> I, I shared your fear of losing my memory, but I don't now. Not now I've read that book. And I'd, if, I've, if I start to get bad, I shall pass the book on to my carers. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the author of the book, by the way, is Oliver James, it's, uh, it's, uh, who's a psychologist. I'm glad that um, it reached, uh, reached you, Rosie. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope they remember to bring it back. <laughs> oh, uh, Tony, thank you. Feels a bit like a Buddhist karaoke. This. <laughs> I just wanted to um, thank everybody who's been involved in this weekend and acknowledge that the actual structure is truly innovatory and very, very creative. And for those of you who haven't been involved with the Forest Sangha for a long time, one of the really intriguing aspects of it for me was to have Ajahn Amaro and the other Sangha members sitting out in the audience and to actually move away from this us and them hierarchical, Bante knows everything, <coughs> and which I think for everybody concerned isn't always very healthy or conducive to, to progress, including the Bantes. <laughs> very and wonderful English understatement. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been fantastically well organized and I feel deep gratitude for being able to participate in this, what I would see as a groundbreaking event. And I hope it'll be the beginning of similar um, situations where we can kind of indulge in a bit of cross-fertilization and not stay in our respective camps, um, which I think can be very restrictive. And one of the other things I just wanted to comment on was this weekend, because of the subject matter, has generated a lot of feelings. And I think it's really interesting in terms of Buddhism coming to the West and the Forest Sangha coming to the West to look at how people regard feelings in 2012 who are very involved in practice including monks and nuns as well as lay people who've been involved a long time because going right back to the early days when perhaps there wasn't the same confidence about how Thai forest Sangha traditions would, would translate to Western situations there was a very there was a lot more skepticism about going into feelings and about whether that was something that was a kosher thing to do. And this perhaps has been symptomatic of a huge development over the years where, and I'm not quite sure how it sits with Orthodox Buddhist practice and where it sits as far as um, not identifying with the feelings. Because for me, one of the slight apprehensions is whether we don't get over excited by the feelings as I'm aware looking at myself this afternoon as opposed to retaining a sense of disentanglement or dispassion and it's where you strike the balance between those two things I think it's wonderful to go into the feelings but I'm also a little bit apprehensive and that isn't just stiff British upper lipness it's um, how does it actually sit with the path of liberation as opposed to just what you might get out of a wonderful encounter and sharing that you'd have between lovely people, which as well as many other things, this has been for me this weekend. So I think it's been fantastic. And 
dot, 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 really. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tony. Thank you. Yes, I just to follow. But nearer the I just will follow with the praises for the structure and content and facilitation of this event. And I'm coming from a tradition where sharing is on a daily basis, so I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but um, so thanks to everyone. I know it's a lot of work to organize it. So. On, on a personal level, three things which were important for me. One is thanks to Carol's sharing. I've got a real insight of the different letters, shapes of my past relationships. <laughs> uh, it, 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 you know, and also sort of where I am now. And I think one of the things I've re realized, I'm, I'm not in a relationship at the moment, that I have some age relationship with some of my friends but it's different because it's almost like it's age comes together for a time where we meet and then it goes so i'm this i <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also you know i shared this fear of you know not being cared for with love and whatever and um, it's sort of like <sighs> i i've got this reminder here that in a way i have to look at it as any of fears. It's not any different fear from other fears. And uh, I can really relate to what you said recently because uh, this is the work I've done with anxiety, uh, which you know, I could say anxiety was my second name. And once, when I was, and I always tried to push it away. And once, again, following sort of my tradition, I, I said, hi, anxiety, I know you. In fact, you are my oldest friend. And you know what happened? I burst into tears, and anxiety lessened. <laughs> so I, I just know it works. And the last thing, which won't be that sweet, It's maybe just me, maybe there are some other people who share it, but for me, this, um, you have to do it today, you may die tomorrow, has the opposite effect. Mm -hmm. I just rebel. Mm -hmm. And maybe because it seems such a huge thing, something there's no way I can do it, so I won't even try. I, I work much better if I can sort of appreciate and be happy with small steps I'm making, taking, and noticing that I'm not so faced by something I still was a year ago, two years ago, ten years ago. But if someone tells me, it just completely blocks me. And uh, so I don't know if any one word comes to mind, kindness, be kind to yourself. I'm very aware of time because I'd like to give Achanamara some time to answer. And I have a feeling that uh, ins inspired as we are, we could go on for a very long time. <laughs> so um, <coughs> I'm not sure at what point to do this, Acham, but I'd like to say a little thank you to the retreat center managers and perhaps we can conclude with your summary. Is that work <coughs> for you? I wanted in some way to acknowledge the fact that you know none of this could have taken place without the enormous amount of work and preparation that the retreat center managers put into this event <coughs> and also the cooks who fed us. We didn't have to spend hours over cooking pots and chopping vegetables, uh, although some of that did take place. So on behalf of us all, actually, I have a little bag here and it says gratitude on it. And interestingly enough, we all received one of these when I say all of us. The, some of the sort of key presenters receive one of these bags. And gratitude, um, being such a generous um, state of mind, is something that whatever comes around goes around. So I return the bag with gratitude, <laughs> <laughs> pass it on, and it contains a few little uh, thank yous from, from us as a, as a, as a or coordinating committee. So I'd like to give that to um, Joanna uh, as a representative, if I may. If you don't, I can come, actually, I can, should I do it? 
so that you don't have to come. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed. And on my part, I'd just like to say thank you for the privilege of um, spending time with you all. It's been really a deeply moving weekend. And a thank you to Etchen Amaro for facilitating and allowing it to happen. So thank you, Etchen. And I hand over to you. It's been a very uh, lovely occasion for myself also. Um, as it was mentioned at the beginning, the idea was originally floated by uh, Ajahn Munindo, and then uh, uh, I thought it was a, a, a very important theme to explore, and I had memories of, of past events of this kind of nature here, and then also I'd done a few things of this uh, kind of character in the States in the past, so uh, I thought it would be a, a very fertile and uh, useful area to explore, and I, I really appreciate all of the input that, uh, that Nick and Carol and Caroline and uh, uh, Richard and Rory, who just happened to be staying in the Bodhi house when we were having a meeting, and said, oh, this is right up my street. Can I join too? <laughs> so, uh, you know, all of us, uh, Ajahn Kalyana, Ajahn Bodhipala, uh, and then also particularly for Joseph Kappel and Catherine coming all the way over from the USA just for this, um, uh, this event and for the, the death and dying retreat. So. Uh, uh, thank you all for the, the contributions that you, that you made. The, uh, I don't know if I've heard so much clapping at the end of a retreat. <laughs> but anyway, I shall continue. Um, so uh, we also had very interesting and, and, and delightful discussions, pulling it all together, having the coordinating uh, people putting our heads together and thinking, hmm, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? How might it work? And one of the thoughts I had uh, in terms of the, the seating and sort of shuffling, you know, rather than having the, you know, the sangha sort of up front as the experts and, and everybody else as the, the sort of the recipients, uh, that uh, I, I, I fully acknowledge Tony's uh, articulation of that. That's exactly the same kind of thoughts I've had in my mind. But particularly because, um, as the saying goes, we are all sisters and brothers in aging, si uh, sickness, and death, and there is no hierarchy <laughs> when it comes to, uh, to sickness and death. Uh, as uh, Lumpur Chah once put it, uh, as, uh, aging and sickness and death, they have no manners. <laughs> they are not polite. They just, uh, they just show up and move in, and they don't ask permission first. So <laughs> whether you are the, uh, you know, a, a humble layperson uh, or whether you are a, a supreme patriarch, you know, all the way through the spectrum, you know, they, uh, sickness and aging and death, just, they just show up and uh, kick the door in and <laughs> take over. <laughs> so uh, we're all in the same boat. And so I felt that was uh, important to reflect. And, uh, you know, the medium is the message in some ways. And part of that uh, uh, equality, the shared experience as human beings, I felt was good to include in the, the way we set this up and, and how we sort of move in and out of um, the uh, sort of uh, leading or, or being in a, a central position. In terms of some of the themes, um, the uh, in terms of, of um, the particularly today's themes, and then also what uh, uh, Sash was bringing up about the the fear of losing memory, and, and uh, Nick's ex extremely eloquent and comprehensive ten minute <laughs> <laughs> snapshot of the entire domain, and uh, all sorts of skillful means of relating to that. Another element that came to mind that is very strong in the Buddha's teachings is uh, the capacity to, to, to live in the present moment. And that uh, memory is to do with re uh, recollecting the past. It's drawing on information, but it's a lot to do with the past, and then fear is also a lot to do with the future. And that uh, over and over again, the Buddha encouraged that the capacity that we have to, to focus on the present moment. And um, as one Thich Nhat Hanh's book's uh, present moment, wonderful moment, and also, you'll have noticed in the reading list, um, Sue Moon, who's quite a, 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 a wag, a wit. Uh, Susan Moon has a new book out called A Senior Moment, Wonderful Moment. <laughs> that, uh, and so even though that, that might sound a bit flippant, she, and she is a kind of comedian as well as a Dhamma teacher, I felt that was um, you know, probably a very neat way of, of framing it. Uh, the... Um, uh, the whole realm of uh, of memory and time and uh, and expectation, anticipation or fear, 
These are, are uh, an area that Buddhist meditation is, is very uh, carefully crafted to, to approach and to help us to, to work with and to understand. I was also particularly remembering uh, as I was listening to that, that dialogue of uh, a friend of ours, he, he passed away now, but there was a, a man in, in um, California who was a, uh, had been a, a, um, a, a professor of cultural anthropology. And um, he had a, a near-death experience. He uh, crashed his car in Death Valley, <laughs> appropriately enough, and went through the windscreen and was three months in a coma. And during that, that three-month period, he had all kinds of very extraordinary visionary um, uh, states. Uh, he had long dialogues with Freud and with Darwin <laughs> in his uh, uh, inner landscape during that time. But one of the things that... that uh, um, emerged from that was when he came out of his coma after three months uh, he, he recovered, sl he slowly recovered all of his mental faculties um, his, uh, his speech his uh, Spanish language returned before his English language his learnt language arrived first uh, he didn't even realize he was a human being at first when he woke up in the hospital he thought the, this la the, the floor polisher was actually the main entity and this, this, this other thing that was pushing the floor polisher around, he thought they were the kind of appendix. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the floor polisher that was making all the noise and having all the color, he thought that was the, that was the real important thing. <laughs> so he tried to address the, the floor polisher, the actual <laughs> machine at first. But he slowly re pieced his world back together again. But one thing that happened was that his relationship to time was, was completely transformed. So he, he was... Um, his, he was very, very lucid and clear-minded, but he said uh, he couldn't relate to the past or the future in an abstract way. His mind was, was very much fixed in the present moment. And he said, do you know what the result is? I can't get bored with people. <laughs> I ne I'm never trying to pull away from a conversation. And I'm never trying to, to say, oh, that, that reminds me of, or, or I used to, or, or I'm going to. And that... Uh, he had this extraordinary relationship to the present and that his, the abstractions of the, of the past and the future were so clearly uh, flimsy abstractions to him. And he was the most uh, kind of bright and clear and uh, cheerful fellow. He used to ride around on a bicycle with his long white beard and was a, <laughs> was a, a very um, joyous person. I'm not presenting him as an enlightened um, being and I wouldn't recommend going through a windscreen <laughs> in order to become one. But uh, it, it struck me very deeply as to that relationship to time that the circumstances had pushed him into. But our meditation can also help us to develop that same kind of relationship to time and particularly to the present. And so that if we, in a way, invest uh, and train our hearts to attend to, to the present and to not give such um, substantiality to our recollections of the past and to you know, information and to the, uh, the way that we fill up the future, just as the Buddha describes in the Bade Karata Sutta, not to dwell upon the past, not to, uh, to uh, create ideas about the future, but to attend in the present moment to each presently arisen thing. So this is the ideal solitude, the, 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 the most beautiful abiding. That, and that in terms of, of working with the, the diminishing of faculties, um, and, and also the loss of memory, the loss of being able to recreate the past or, or draw information. That when we have really trained our minds to attend and to delight in the present, the present moment, wonderful moment, that uh, even though that there, there is obviously a sense of loss at not being able to remember what the capital of Paraguay is or that, the name of that river, Lethe, by the way. <laughs> the, 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 the river of forgetfulness was the uh, river of Lethe. If I, I can still remember that, <laughs> I think I'm right. <laughs> the Limpopo is the great green, greasy, green, greasy Limpopo River. And Lethe is one of the four rivers of Yes, and we can discuss the muses later on. <laughs> so, but uh, that was one particular um, uh, element that came to mind. I thought it was it wasn't really touched on, but I f in terms of meditation and how we can train ourselves. Anyway, equip ourselves for the, the, the erosion of faculties when, they, when the faculties go forth, to, uh, to train our hearts to abide and to, to delight in the present in that way. 
in terms of another of the things that, that came up during today as the um, I was reminded uh, in terms of preparing for, for death and sort of wanting to um, to be ready um, I was I was telling some of the others of a uh, of an incident that happened um, next door to Baigiri Monastery is another Thai forest monastery just to, as the neighbors and these pe uh, the people who um, go and stay there and practice there are students of a, a Thai forest master called um, uh, Alon Potun. And so the people would come up from the, from the San Francisco Bay Area, usually half a dozen people, maybe a dozen people, go and stay for a weekend or a week or a couple of weeks. They'd stay in little cooties in the forest and then back to the city. They were mostly um, working people and business people. So on one particular occasion, uh, the, a car with, with three people in was driving back down to San Francisco and there's an area of the Highway 101 that just sort of sweeps uh, in cur gentle curves following the, the Russian River. And uh, the fellow who was driving the car, his name was Crit, and he had there was a, a woman in the front seat, it was called Noi, which means small, and she, <laughs> she's about five foot nothing. Uh, and then in the back seat, lying down, resting, was uh, a, an eight precept nun. Um, uh, uh, and uh, she was taking a nap on the back seat. So as uh, Crit was making this curve, uh, uh, following the highway uh, beside the Russian River, he saw another car sort of coming along the, the curve, in, heading towards him, and then he suddenly real uh, and his eye was seeing just them following the normal track, and suddenly he realized, oh, that car is not following the normal track, it's coming right at me. And the, 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 the time that he, by the time he realized, oh, it's coming right at me, They've missed the curve. They're asleep at the wheel, or they've gone unconscious for some reason. He said, "I had about one and a half seconds." So by the time I realised the car was coming, um, I, uh, I I knew uh, there's nothing I can do. I can't get out the way. So he said, in that in that uh, very very short period of time, he he realised there's nothing I can do. So I better get ready. So he took his hands off the wheel. And then the thought arose in his mind, so this was why I've been doing all this meditation. This is, I've been dealing with my aching knees and my wandering mind for the last 15 years. It was to prepare for this moment. And uh, he took off his, his hands off the wheel and, and just got ready for the end to come. And the, the oncoming car rode up over the bonnet and then ripped the, the roof of their car off. Fortunately, Noi was indeed five foot nothing because the, the car went over the passenger seat side and just uh, scooted over the top of her head, <laughs> and uh, they, they, uh, Crit and Noi got away with cuts and bruises, but the, the nun who was having a nap on the back seat, she was, she was uh, quite, uh, quite injured. But uh, it was a, a very powerful uh, event, and it struck me very deeply, because in that extremely short period of time, he knew, okay, <laughs> this is, this is uh, all I've got, this is all the time I've got to get ready, so, get with the program. <laughs> and, you know, time does slow down uh, in those uh, incidents, those kind of situations. Many people describe that. But I felt it was also very beautiful and, and helpful, encouraging. Uh, and I don't know how your experience was in the, in the underground, but when there is, like, no time to prepare, there's still something that says, okay, get ready, because the worst has just happened. And then if we have done our preparation, then we know what to do, mm -hmm. and we know how to, to let go. So I wanted to you know, share that with, with everyone. Um, the, um, uh, I think I've covered all of the points that came up during today. Oh, yeah, one last thing I wanted to say was um, I really appreciated the discussion this morning about brokenness. I felt that was a very important uh, point of, of the teaching because um, uh, I think both Kathy and, and Tony were uh, addressing that and, and some others, how uh, it's a more kind of a, a, a sort of Walt Disney type fairy tale. Grimm's fairy tales, there's a lot of people end up really broken. <laughs> you know, and I think those fairy tales are more useful and important as archetypes for us because, yeah, real damage does happen. You know, that the, the, they don't always come back to life and it's not always happily ever after for everyone. Walt Disney and <laughs> the Hollywood Spielberg kind of ending is more happily ever after. But uh, I felt that, that um, not trying to find resolution through fixing everything, because some things break and they stay broken. But also that uh, things, uh, the brokenness of things uh, is not an absolute. 
that, that when things break, oftentimes when things end or fall apart or they fail, that creates the environment for something, uh, a whole other phase to come through. Even though there's pain and, and wreckage in the break, there's also, the, uh, which is to be acknowledged and is real, that from that breaking and from that ending, then uh, a whole other uh, qualities can, can arise that might not have happened had there not been that, that kind of damage or that difficulty. And sh to share one last story, um, uh, uh, when I c uh, came here a couple of years ago, uh, a woman came to speak to me, um, and she said that uh, told this very tragic story how uh, she had um, about ten or fifteen years ago taken a, a group of children, her, her niece and a number of her friends, to the seaside, and she was the responsible adult uh, and looking after these kids and. Um, and while they were in the sea, the, the, uh, her niece got swept away. And she wasn't paying attention. It, it was her fault. Mm -hmm. And her niece died, a little girl. And, uh, and so she was terribly torn up and, uh, and has, had been working for the pre next sort of 10, 15 years dealing with that. And it was, it was a very moving uh, conversation because she was, uh, I think this has been addressed in, in what you were saying also today, how not just pushing it away and, and, and trying to stop feeling it, not grasping it and wallowing it and saying, I'm a terrible person, I've ruined this, this family's life and you know, I, should, I should be punished, I can never be forgiven. But to acknowledge the pain, like yes, that was poorly done, that was um, a, a, a my fault, uh, th there was a fault there, suffering happened and it has my name on it. But rather than identifying with that and turning that into, an, uh, into guilt and, and the kind of toxic shame, mm -hmm. she used the painfulness of that to, to uh, uh, encourage her to live more skillfully and to develop uh, greater qualities of mindfulness and compassion. So like the skillful use of pain is a, a lot to do with how we um, can work with those you know, losses and that brokenness and, and the things that are, are, are difficult in our life. You're not pretending they're not there. You're not identifying with them. You're acknowledging that, yes, this is painful, but you turn that painfulness into a cause for waking up. Because so, pain does get our attention. And so that was the last of the things I wanted to, to, to share, that uh, even when the worst does happen, or, and, and it's really uh, something that is... Um, our fault, and particularly in that relationship to, to um, regret and remorse and uh, resolution, that resolution can come not by having fixed the, the thing that was, that was lost or broken, but more using that as a, as a guiding force as a, and using the energy of that painfulness to encourage us to wake up and to, to guide our, our attention towards what's beneficial and wholesome. Thank you, Ajahn. <coughs> with uh, your permission, I'd like to just make sure that I don't walk away with any regrets or remorses. I'd, li <laughs> uh, I'd like to make a resolution. There were four names I wanted to mention, and I didn't mention, and those names are of the cooks who helped the retreat center managers, yes. So I'd like to mention Juliet, Valerie, Sue, and Sharon, who actually put so much work into the food that we ate. Yes, they're all here. I see Juliet. Yeah, Diana's been mentioned, uh, which is fine, but Sue, is it? Yes, yeah, Sue. And Sharon? All oh, right, okay. Wonderful. Fine, okay. Well, I feel I can walk away with a clear conscience. <laughs> Thank you very much.